When you drive the brand ranked number one in dependability by J.D. Power, you can stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see yourself behind the wheel of the brand ranked number one in dependability by J.D. Power. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Kia received the fewest reported problems among all brands in the J.D. Power 2022 U.S. Vehicle Dependability Study based on 2019 models. See jdpower.com slash awards for 2022 details. You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintzenmeyer. We have reached the epic episode 100. And my guest today is Dan Stewart, who reigned over the Arizona cowpunk scene as the frontman of Green on Red, starting in 1979 all the way to 1992. You're listening right now to 16 Ways from Green on Red's second full album, Gas Food Lodging, from 1985. In addition to the seven studio albums and three EPs with Green on Red, he's recorded two albums with Steve Wynn, one of my previous guests, under the name Danny and Dusty, one with a guy named Al Perry, and we're going to be talking today about his solo albums that have been spread out in fits and starts between his various life changes. In the early 10s, he moved to Mexico and has written two novels that go along with his recent albums. We're going to be talking about A Killer Now from The Unfortunate Demise of Marlo Billings, it's a 2018 album, and there's a book of that exact same name that I also read. We'll also listen to Sky Harbor from that same album, then look back to La Passionaria from Can of Worms, his first solo album from 1995. And finally, we'll listen to Who Knows by a one-off band he created called The Slummers with J.D. Foster. The album was called Love of the Amateur 2010. For more information about Dan's music and writing, see MarloBillings.com. And for more about this podcast, see NakedlyExaminedMusic.com. So I have played a little bit of 16 Ways from Green on Red. It's our only Green on Red representation here, despite the fact that that is the thing you are most known for. Yeah, I want to talk more about the more recent stuff. Do you want to give us a little the snapshot of getting to the latest album, The Unfortunate Demise of Marlo Billings 2018, before we hear A Killer Now. Basically what happened is I just sort of disappeared from the music world for, uh, I don't know, 15 years or so. Had a good run, obviously, with Green on Red. Had a lot of fun. Got to go all over the world. Got to record in a lot of great studios with a lot of great producers and the critics were always very kind to us, generally speaking, but never had that one hit that would put your kids through college, as uh, Lee Hazelwood once told me, Boots Made for Walking did for him. <laughs> I kind of had a normal life and, uh, you know, was in a cubicle for a while and I was out in New York and uh, did some other things. Uh, and then, like what happens to a lot of people in life is your life sort of falls apart. In 2010, I, you know, I was married to somebody who I love very much. You know, I'm a dutiful husband and was told to leave. So that's what I did. And I went down to Oaxaca, leaving behind, obviously, her. And um, he must have been about 12, I guess, at that point, a son. And, you know, I didn't know what to do. I, at that point, the only thing I really knew how to do was make a record. And so that's what I did. And I kind of invented this alter ego, this nom de guerre, a guy by the name of Marlo Billings that had been around forever, sort of in the green on red cosmology. After that was kind of a lot of fun and started playing again. And, you know, I had this idea of doing a trilogy of records and a trilogy of books using that whole sort of pretense as a launching pad. So that here we are. I've finished the trilogy. I've done three of those Marlo records and 
still have one more book to write. And that'll be it. Probably time to leave the music business again for 15 years. If I'm alive that long, I, you know, people won't have to worry about me coming back because by that time I'll be an ancient. It just goes to show that the music waits for you. I feel really kind of weird now about how many people have all of these solo records. I'm quite proud that I've only made four. I made one right when Grin on Red disintegrated. And then I've made three. So I've made four solo records, which probably is three too many. But, you know, I'm happy with them and they serve their purpose. So how about A Killer Now in particular? Well, A Killer Now is sort of like I had such great experiences in Memphis. And I'm a big fan of the box tops, obviously, and the gentries and stuff like that. And, you know, Killer Now's just got sort of that Memphis pop soul thing going for it. And I was just kind of riffing on what's happened to so many kids out there, especially living down in Mexico with what they call the ninis, which means neither educated nor employed. A lot of kids like that, a criminal lifestyle becomes very alluring. And so within the context of Mexico being such a matriarchy, I just was sort of riffing on that idea of there's many right roads in life and only one wrong road. And when you're on that bad road, it's never too late to turn around, I guess. So kill her now. <laughs>
I just read the book after listening to this album a bunch of times and then listened to the album again. And there's certainly not a song to scene matchup. How do the two projects line up exactly in your mind? They're just thematically similar. Just like the first book, the first book and the first Marlowe record. Yeah, exactly what you say. They're not bookends or anything like that. They just use the title. And in this case, with this novel, it actually is a novel as opposed to the first one. It was more sort of like, I called it a false memoir or however you pronounce that in French, the Romana Clef or something like that, which is you write about real things, but you use different names for the characters. So you fictionalize the names, but I don't know. I mean, that one was a little more than 65% true. (laughs) I mean, I'm like anybody else. I'm like any other writer, you know, I'm just trying to figure out how to do it and trying to survive each book. But as far as it, being a direct they're not mirror images of each other it's just sharing the title and there's probably something else in there that is similar but i've never wanted to really kind of look into that stuff too deeply because i would rather sort of keep it a mystery to myself and then maybe there would come a day later where with a touch of nostalgia or something else that i see what i was doing right I mean, that happens a lot, like years and years go by and then suddenly you see something or you hear a story about yourself or you hear a song that you wrote a long time ago and you go, oh, I was writing about that, but I didn't really realize that's what I was doing there. So I think that the muse is a mystery to the creator just as much as it is to any sort of audience. In this song in particular, I thought this maybe was the narrator talking to himself. But now you're saying this is sort of a generalized about any number of people who are in that situation in Mexico or any sort of child soldier sort of. Yeah, it expands way beyond Mexico. It's just that thing about being a kid and having the world in front of you and making some bad choices. And, you know, it's straight up, you know, and it's sort of like the mother's, you know, singing to her son. At the time, too, I still do. I mean, I have a kid just now graduating from college. But, you know, it's the worry of a parent and all of that. And certainly I was, you know, a great disappointment to my parents as far as going, I mean, you know, punk rock. Oh, (laughs) God forbid, right? And actually, my music career, what led to that first deal with Slash Records was I caught a case in Tucson of a smash and grab of a very iconic music store. And I went to LA and I said to myself, if I get a job here, you know, every time and then just fly back for my court dates and then explain to the judge and the pre-sentencing person that I'm now I'm gainfully employed in LA County and no longer a problem for the state of Arizona. I said to myself, you know, as a middle-class white boy, upper middle-class really, that there's a good chance they're going to just give me probation. And that's exactly what happened. And so that was really the impetus for leaving Tucson and going to LA. And then we were signed to Slash Records a year later. Maybe that's what I was singing about. I don't know. There's an old joke, what comes first, the melody or the lyrics? And I think Irvin Berlin said, the check, the check in the that comes first. With me, it's just, it happens simultaneously. And certainly the lyrics don't get finished or the music for that sake. But really, a songwriting is a fairly fast, innocent sort of process. It might take a year to finish a song, but 
you know within five minutes whether you, there's something there to finish, right? So in the case of The Killer Now, it was just sort of that soulful R&B Memphis groove. And, you know, oh, child, what have you done? Where are you now? Oh, child, where are you now? A timeless sort of lament. It matters a lot as to what tone is supposed to be setting here, whether Killer is metaphorical or not. And it sounds like you're saying at least it wasn't part of the initial, you know, that this was not going to be stuck in the middle with you while there's torture going on in the Reservoir Dogs, you know, that it's not this lightness, but yet the country murder ballad lyrics, but yet putting it like that, that you can interpret it either way, that it could be you're a killer in terms of you're an adult, you're doing the cutthroat things that one needs to do as an adult. You've lost your innocence just in general terms. But in the context of I don't think it's a spoiler to say that your book takes place in Mexico. There's some Mexican drug-related violence in it that having that label under, you know, after having looked at the book and seeing that content, then I'm reading this, you know, as literal where it really does come as like the, you're a killer now is the punchline. It's, you know, it sounds like it's just innocence lost in some general way. In fact, we'll just kind of slip it in right near the end. This could actually be talking about somebody in a war-torn situation or whatever. You're right on as far as me understanding when I put the verses together, very minimal sort of, you know, lyric song. But I knew at the end that I was going to surprise anybody that was listening closely. It starts as sort of just like a pleading lament of a mom or a parent speaking to their child and then when you get to the end, he says, but you're a killer now, meaning you just think that there's maybe some emotional disengagement between the two or whatever. But at the end, it's apparent that the child has blood on their hands. That must be a devastating thing for a parent to know that their child is a murderer. And as I say, there's a lost generation in a lot of places. I just saw this beautiful photograph from Syria of these young kids that and you have no idea what these kids have been through or what they've done or the child soldiers of the Congo, for instance, right? This is happening all over the world right now, that there's this innocent loss, that there's these kids doing the dirty business for the adults. And it could be through a, a narco. I don't really believe in legitimate versus illegitimate, especially in a place like Mexico, because it's all one thing. But it's either, you know, it, it, through a neoliberal economic thing, or it's a war thing, or a sectarian violence thing. And that there's just a lot of lost kids out there, and it's a tragedy for the kid, but it's also a tragedy for the family. And so I wrapped it all up in a very sort of sweet, <laughs> groovy sort of song, which goes a lot of the credit for that, goes to Danny Amos, the producer. And he as well was sort of surprised by that last lyric. Just like your response, it was like, oh. But that's the sort of thing that I think I've pretty much done in all my so-called careers that I never make anything sort of easy. And it's not like I do that on purpose. It's just I don't want to patronize the audience, but I don't want to patronize myself either, right? I don't want to speak down to anybody, and I also don't want to speak down to myself. And so I'm trying to figure it out too, right? So you riff into me about what it means to you. 
you know, that helps me understand it a little bit more. I don't have any sort of grand design about what all this shit means. I find myself thinking recently about, you know, I think when we Westerners write in a naive way about, you know, what I think about Peter Gabriel writing about Africa or something like that, he's making it exotic musically. We think we're putting ourselves in the shoes of these foreign people, but we're doing it through tropes of, even if they are, you know, authentic to the music of the region, they sound foreign to us. Whereas, especially now, I was just watching this Larry Charles Dangerous World of Comedy, where he's going into Liberia and places like this and talking in Iraq and talking to people in war-torn countries about how they deal with laughter. It's a similar thing here that to the extent that music is international, that, you know, you could have somebody that is in a very foreign situation to me who is not exposed to lawlessness and murder, you know, just not even being familiar as you are with Mexico in that way. The sense of you know, if you were going to joke about something, you could actually use traditional, pretty happy. We all use the same tropes, no matter what situation you're in. Whereas when a privileged white boy like me is using dark and dreary blues riffs, like there's a certain, it's a dramatic extension. It's, a, it's an attempt to do a little bit of theater. But if you're actually in that situation, there's no reason you would be talking theatrically, right? You would probably be humming an R&B tune as you'd go about running from the law or whatever the, whatever you're actually doing. Yeah, it's something that either you grew up with and is in your DNA or it's something that you learn. And I don't want to get into the whole cultural appropriation thing because there's just way too much of that. But you'll notice on all of these records, uh, the last record too that I did with a great garage band down in uh, Mexico City, Twin Tones, is... I'm not putting on fucking mariachi and shit or, you know, I don't do that. I mean, a long time ago on the first record on this one song, I did use the Valenzuela brothers and South Tucson on some mariachi stuff, but I've been credited for the first Gabacho, the first Weto to do that in Tucson. But I like to think that I did that just to serve the tune and that there wasn't this sort of like trying to be so... Oh, it's just, I don't want to talk shit. I mean, I'll just say, put it this way. If, if, you know, there's a famous band that if they would have called themselves Mexicali instead of Calexico, they might not have done as well. I just want to sort of be honest to myself and to the potential listener. I mean, I don't like being talked down to or lectured to. I'll tell you what, I just heard a song that I didn't even remember. It was on the local sort of public radio station here. And they played that song, Lafayette something, which is a Paul Simon song with like a Cajun thing, Cajun beat. And it was off of Graceland. And I thought that it was the most stilted vocal delivery and the most unauthentic, just gross. I mean, just the, and I don't remember, you know, he got such accolades for that record, you know, and it's like, thing you have to remember it about a place like Mexico is, you know, those 30,000 people that have disappeared since they really turned the screws on back in 2008, as far as the military internally, those are Mexicans, okay? That's not somebody having a horror story from being robbed on a spring break in Cancun, okay? This is their tragedy. This is their story. And certainly a song like A Killer Now, I'm just sort of picking up on, you know, I'm a parent, right? Generally speaking, kids are kids, and then, you know, life happens to them, and things can go south quick, right? 
So I was just kind of plugging into that and my own love for my son. I do want to talk about the music and the production a little bit, but uh, we're talking themes. Let's let's get the second song out there, Sky Harbor. I wanted to listen to another song from the recent album that was a totally different style, different chord vocabulary, different instrumentation, etc. And it's about being, at least part of it, is it's about being an old guy. <laughs> yeah, do you want to give a quick intro to, to it before we hear it, and then we'll talk in depth? Sky Harbor's just a, a tune about a couple old frenemies bumping into each other, a couple old cohorts that, well, it happens a lot with us old punk rockers. We're all, it's all like we're all veterans from this cultural war we fought back in the day. And, and they just bump into each other and they realize that, you know, at this point, it's time to bury the hatchet anytime you can, because you never know that it might be too late next time. You know, as Dylan says, mortality is like taking scissors to a string. And it's just about, you know, running into somebody in an airport and just shooting the shit for a couple minutes and life goes on for both uh, characters.
It's a very nice atmospheric thing. A lot of accordion and slide guitar. Do you want to say a little about sort of where this song came from? Was this just you writing on acoustic guitar and then it just taking it into the studio and figuring out from there how it was going to develop? This record, a lot of it was written in open D minor. I've been using open tuning quite a bit since coming back on these three records, especially the last two records. You know, what happens is, is you start falling in love with this simple phrasing because you're hearing the chords stack differently, right? Kind of makes you fall in love with the one, four, and five again, simple changes, because you think you're doing something different. But when you put the guitar back in standard tuning and you learn it that way, you go, oh, that's the most stupid song ever written. (laughs) (laughs) But we need to have these tricks to wake up interested, right? We need to keep this sort of thing going in our lives, you know? And so... Obviously, I listened to a lot of Neil Young when I was younger and J.J. Kale. And I think there's a little bit of, what's that tune? Uh, Whippoorwill singing, soft summer breeze, got to get back to my love. I left down New Orleans. Uh, uh, Magnolia is the song, right? Magnolia, you're my sweet love. Obviously, if I'd never heard that, I don't think I'd ever have written What's it called again? (laughs) Sky Sky Harbor. Harbor. (laughs) And you know, there might be a few individuals that I think at one point I sent that song to Hal Gelb and I said, yeah, this is kind of like me and you, dude, you know, and he laughed, you know, (laughs) because we were big time frenemies for a long time. Yeah. Playing the poet's game too long. I mean, is this this, uh... that line, the poet's game obviously is a direct lift from Greg Brown who has this great song called The Poet's Game that's just a wonderful song. And I definitely just straight up lifted that The Poet's Game from him. And I'm sure it had been, we're not the first, I'm sure The Poet's Game has been talked about from, uh, you know, way back in England with the crazy generational poets of Edwardian and Victorian England. I'm sure they talked about The Poet's Game too. Guys like Verlaine, I'm sure... (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure they did. And in France, yeah. The Poets game, we get over. So, I mean, you mentioned Neil Young. You know, Neil Young very much has this songwriting ethic of, I think he said at one point, oh, I write a song every day, which is, you know, an exaggeration. But, and you're saying, I have four soul albums, that's probably three too many. (laughs) Based on his work for the last few decades, maybe he shouldn't. <laughs> That's kind of what I'm trying to get at is what the motivation is in terms of are you trying it doesn't sound like you're trying to you're not doing like the Peter Gabriel I need to craft the perfect thing and if it's not perfect then I'm not even going to bother like no you're much more intuitive and well you can tell me if were these recordings pretty quick the actually getting them to a final form I mean this record was made so fast obviously Danny Amos did a lot of work on it that I don't know about saw that horn arrangement and stuff in the first tune. He had an idea. He did great arrangements and he really thought about what kind of instrumentation he wanted. And what's interesting, at one point, the record could have been a very, very minimal, almost Towns Van Zandt uh, with Jack Clement type record. That's how it started because all of it started with me and an acoustic guitar, either to some sort of rhythm or not. And the first thing I did on all of them was put down pretty much the final vocal before anything, which is upside down. See, this is what I've learned to do after all these years and working in all these studios with all these different people is like, 
I learned all the rules, so it's time to break them all because a lot of these rules are just bullshit. And there's nothing worse. And I come at it from a writer's perspective and not as a musician. Because the musicians, you know, they'll spend around all day, you know, scratching their nuts thinking that, you know, which stomp box to use or, you know, whether to put a, a baritone guitar on something or a fiddle or whatever. When the listener doesn't really give a shit, the listener is looking for some sort of emotional resonance. And it's either there or it's not for them. It either means something to them in a way that usually they can't articulate, just like a great movie. A great movie you wonder about for days and days. You can't really figure it out. But see, the problem now is everybody wants to connect all the dots all the time. You can't have any sort of nuance. You can't have any sort of, and I'm not talking about being vague for the sake of it, right? I'm disgusted by that sort of pretense where it's, oh, I'm just going to be weird here. No, you're not weird. You're not weird at all. You're a coward and you're passing the buck. So, you know, it's a fine line between all of this. But this record, no, my work was done in probably seven studio days, maybe. I mean, I was done. It's like, hey, do what you want. Yeah. You know, and, and then you know, when we talk about it, it'd be nice to have strings on this one or, yeah, some horns here or whatever. We talk about it. Sure we do. But I don't really think it's that important. What I think is important is whether you catch it. Whether you That's one, another Neil Young story. He'd do something and come into the control room and he'd say, did you get me? Did you get me? And that's what he was talking about. He's talking about the undefinable, the mystery. Is the mystery there? And if it's not, well, good luck. You know, I mean, you might sell a lot of records. I mean, I love good pop music. Don't get me wrong. If I could do it, I would have loved to done it. I love pop music. And it takes a lot to offend me, meaning I don't really think music's important enough to have all these huge discussions that music fans like to do about, you know, <laughs> metal machine music versus, you know, <laughs> I mean, I don't care. I mean, it takes a lot to offend me and most of it's just not worth it right i did learn to sort of play guitar in a different way so that i could get interested in it all again and and i'm glad i did i think it really sticks out on this record good luck trying to figure out a lot of these songs in standard and also i you know i'm a half step flat too and all of it so i can sing a little better so i'm not in open d minor i'm in open d minor flat i mean you know i'm a half step down Sounds like your output is, I don't want to say your output is low because your output was, there was a lot of output for quite a long time with all those green on red stuff, you know, coming out in a, on a yearly basis. So a lot of lyrics there. At this point, your attitude is, unless I have something to say or I, you know, need to wait for the inspiration to strike or something. Whereas I found, like I interviewed this other guy, Rod Peacott, who's, who's also like writes short stories and then illustrates them or, you know, writes songs that are kind of related to them. And as a writer, he just feels like he could just sit down and why people write novels that are hundreds of pages long, or in his case, a lot of short stories that there's something, if you're starting as a writer, then you instantly, you don't even have to be adventurous musically, right? You could play basic blues or something and still have so many things to say in terms of different stories to tell, right? You just go a different place in Mexico in your book and write about the tour of the different locations in Mexico. Like that's the half the appeal of the book. And so there's enough right there to fill 
several albums just kind of describing things, but it sounds like you're trying to catch lightning in a bottle. It has a little higher requirement than merely saying something descriptive and true in that it's descriptive. I think it's apples and oranges a little bit, and I'll tell you this why. why is because songwriting is like a 50-meter sprint, and a novel is a marathon, and it's something that you survive, and it has to solve itself, right? At some point, it'll solve itself. And that might come from you, or it might come from the muse coming in through an open window, which is really what happened on the novel. And this novel is something intervened in me. It sounds so pretentious, but it's true. And it happens in music, too, especially we used to say music is geography. You know, me and Chuck were very lucky that we got to record in so many different locations. You know, it's the same thing. It's, hey, what's in the water? What does the water taste like there, right? And it gets into the what you're doing. But I would say that, yes, a novel has to have more discipline to it, it, even though this one is very undisciplined as far as, you know, if you were a marketing person, what would you do? Because as you said, it's part psychological thriller, part travelogue, part crime, nor. So what is it? But a song, like I say, a song happens very quickly. It's something that just, it's like starting a fire, right? With the stick, right? You're rubbing a stick against a stick and you're trying to get this little ember. And then there it happens. You know, it's less work than that, actually. And then something happens, a phrase attaches itself to some music. You've got a little bit of a melody. You've got a little bit of a riff. And you go, yeah, that's a song. You know, you make sure you try not to forget it. Thank God for now, you can just put it on your phone. Back in the days, man, it was like, I used to, I didn't have tape recorders or anything. So I'd have to, I had my own little weird notes that I, because I can't write music, obviously. So I would have this way, this sort of code that what I would put down in a notebook that would describe to myself what I did so that I could do it the next day. Because a lot of times I was going to bed so fucked up, I wouldn't be able to remember what was that what was i doing so uh they're different and also i don't know how much musicians bullshit and lie to each other but writers are constantly lying to each other this whole thing about three hours a day three hours every morning for you know as far as your writing schedule whatever every writer that i know and i know a few when you get them to be talk honestly about that stuff they say oh yeah it's just bullshit you write when you can or you write when you have to there's no way to make yourself. I mean, I guess there's some that can. I don't know. But ask yourself this. Did Philip Roth really need to write, like, what, 40 novels? Really? Really, Philip? You had that much to say over your lifetime? 40 novels? Really? I mean, a lot of that is just masturbation, is it not? And I'm a Philip Roth fan, okay? I think he's written some great books. And I think this has happened also with the music business and because – People are always on the road, and on the road, you need something to sell, and so you got to keep churning out the material, right? You're doing that for your Uber fans, right? You're doing that so you can continue to pay rent and whatever, but there's very few artists that have that much to say, and I don't care how great they are. I mean, look at Neil Young's a great example. It's like, come on, you really make, you need to make all these records you've been making in the last few decades? I don't think so. Maybe it makes you feel better. Great, whatever. But don't expect me to be interested because I'm not. 
and I love you. I mean, I wouldn't play music if it wasn't for you, Dylan. And Dylan's a little different. Dylan to me is like Picasso. He can do whatever he wants. But a guy like Neil Young, it's like, you know. And there does come a point where playing loud rock music becomes stupid. You know, there's an age thing there. It's like, come on. Well, isn't that the reason, I guess, people who record so much, you know, I just interviewed R. Stevie Moore not that long ago, who's sort of known as having, you know, 500 albums or a ridiculous amount. And he makes it his daily work. Like, I don't know what he did for money or whatever, but, but he complains enough about money and not making it off music. But just the amount of work that you would do at a regular nine to five job, if you try to do even a half of that, even a quarter of that and music on a daily basis and you record at home or something, then you end up producing a lot of stuff. And so you end up either just by necessity, like just to keep yourself interested, you end up doing a lot of stylistic exploring. Right. Or it could just be like a punk band that like we could just keep going and it's just it's all going to just be more of the same. And it's just like the person like that's how they breathe. <laughs> so I think there's two different ways of taking your own work that way if you're prolific. I think the Wrecking Crew is a good example of this where everybody just talks about the great songs. Right. Everybody talks about the classics, the Glenn Campbell stuff, whatever. But the Wrecking Crew played on a tremendous amount of dreck. Okay, 90% of their calendar of what they were doing was just forgettable stuff. And you could argue that in a lot of those cases where they were going in and they were replacing the band, the original band that got signed. I mean, there's a joke, right? The first Birds hit with the Wrecking Crew, I don't know which one it was, uh, Tambourine Man maybe, that they did it in three takes. And then Turn, 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 where they actually played on it, that took 50 takes. But I ask you, does it matter? I would also point out that for a lot of these bands that had studio musicians foisted upon them, that it might have been much more interesting if the band was allowed to play, even though they really could not play as far as under those sort of parameters that the business liked to put on stuff back then, right? So everybody talks about, oh, you know, Al Blaine and all the great, you know, and it's like, well, you know what? Talk to him. He'll tell you that he spent a lot of days doing forgettable shit. So it's this whole thing about being prolific. I don't even know what the fuck it means. Clearly, you've been in periods where, for whatever reason, you're able to just write lyrics that I'm assuming that you are mostly happy with them, but write serviceable lyrics, let's say, you know, on a regular basis so that every week or so something is coming out. No, I, I'm not. And okay. I'll tell you, be honest, I, I would say the majority of my lyrics from the 80s is cringe city. The only defense I can give is that a lot of that was just sort of first pass, second pass in the moment stuff. Sometimes it wasn't even written down. And my only defense is that that's who I was in the moment doing something. I've gotten a little more disciplined over time, but I never get it to the point where I'm suddenly going to lose whatever it has. So it doesn't have to make literal sense. It's not my job to figure it out. You know, It's a little bit more my job to do that when I'm writing an author. There still should be something in there that is a mystery to me, that remains a mystery, that remains something that I can never quite put my finger on. And also, one thing, I think, Steve, when we talked about this once, about sometimes the throwaway line in a song is the greatest thing ever. 
it's the line that you knew that the guy said to himself, I come up with something better later. And then it time runs out and he just leaves it in there. And those are sometimes the greatest of the lines because it's life is like that. You're not going to have a meaningful day every day. You're just trying to like survive it. And sometimes when a song really is swinging and has really got a groove or, you know, all of the Brill building stuff where they would just say Bebopaloo or whatever, thinking that they would replace it later. And then the demo shows up with the drifters or whatever. And they just say, no, we're keeping that. That's all that do la la la, whatever. I mean, that's rock and roll, baby. You know, rock and roll is a throwaway line. <laughs> but the cringe thing can be tough going back. There's a song from Gravity Talks called Brave Generation, where I was super pretentious. And my God, I would give anything to go back in time and punch that up. But I didn't. And so now it's like, so to me, it's like the biggest embarrassment ever. You can play it live and change the lyrics for the. <laughs> I did that recently. I rewrote some stuff from when I was 17, you know, and actually re-recorded a couple songs with fixed lyrics. <laughs> there was another reason to do it. It wasn't just to fix the lyrics, but if I was going to do it, I had to do that. <laughs> and also, lyrics I like, songs I like, I change the lyrics on when I do them live. Because I just feel like that's what you, we all should be doing. You know, that's what folk music is. Maybe once every couple months, I'll get an email from somebody requesting lyrics about something. They'll say, we're doing, you know, I got a garage band and we're doing this song and I got this lyric and this lyric. Do you say this or that? And sometimes I don't really remember if I don't, I mean, I don't have my, I don't have my records. I don't know. And a lot of times I just say, hey, listen, sing what you feel is right. Sing what you feel is cool. I mean, Dylan wouldn't have a career if he was worried about other people's lyrics. <laughs> Let's get your third song out here so we can use this to connect some of the things we've been talking about. So this is La Passionaria from Can of Worms, 1995. So this is right before the break. And yet this is presaging not only in the fact that you're using, so this is a, a co-write with Fernando and Jaime Valencia. Fernando is doing the violin and, and uh, Jaime is doing the guitar or one of the guitars, the guitarron. And it says the vihuela. So I don't even know what <laughs> what the vihuela is. That's like a mandolin type thing, yeah. U ukulele type thing, yeah. And singing the, the background vocals. And, you know, this sounds like it could be something off of one of the Marlowe Billings albums. Just Mexico Records, but isn't. Yeah, e Exactly. And, and just that it is a story. It has some of that country death song thing that, you know, goes all the way back into Green on Red. Say a little about this before we play it. Oh, it's just about Dolores Ibaruri, right? She was La Pasinaria, who was this big force in Madrid during the Civil War to keep everybody's spirits up and to keep the fascists out of Madrid. And uh, it's a song about, you know, my life in Madrid, which was very dismal. I was a very strung out. And it was just sort of my plea to her to help me survive.
So you want to say a little about how you would do this collaboration? Did you have the full song on acoustic, you know, the way you'd normally do it? And then how did you even connect with these guys? It's kind of similar to the string section that happened on Upon a Father's Death on the new record in that, you know, you get some good players in to do something and they say, where are the charts? (laughs) And you go, oh, you write the charts. Okay. Well, but yeah, exactly. And they'll they'll kind of swear and it's like, hey, it's more money, essay or whatever, you know. But really, how hard can it be? Because it's within the vernacular, right? It's not that. Although Danny wrote, he didn't chart it out, but he wrote the parts for a lot of that stuff that's on the new record. But this one, we just brought the Valencia Brothers. I'm glad you said I, I thought it was the Valenzuela Brothers. <laughs> I've forgotten. It's the Valencia Brothers who are probably still around. I'm sure they are. And we just brought him in and took a couple hours and voila, how hard can it be? That eternal question. 
Well, and you gave them a co-write, which is, you know, to bring up Paul Simon again, what he's being kind of blasted for now in the same way that he did seemingly exactly what you're doing in terms of what you did with this song, in terms of, I want to use the local color, I will get some local guys to do it, I want to get their groove, I want to have them do their thing, and, you know, you gave them credit for it, so... I've always been very generous with giving credit because I just feel like it should be done more and people don't do it. They get very precious about it and they think, you know, come on. If somebody's adding like a major melody, something, or somebody's adding something that makes that song distinct, then they deserve to at least, it depends. It also depends. If somebody's making a big fee, let's say it's a producer and he's making a big fee and he's doing that to all the tunes, right? Well, that's part of his fee. I mean, Jim Dickinson was really, really important on those two records we did with him. But, you know, he was making a good fee too. So he doesn't need to get songwriting credit. I will say that I'm always the writer. I'm never the co-writer. It's not going to happen without what I'm doing and done. It's just when the thing gets going... And then it becomes, I'm going to be very, very sort of open to the idea that you want people to contribute. I once asked Alex Chilton, I said, Alex, why don't you co-write more? He says, I don't know, man. Whenever I do, I feel like it's not me. So I could understand that, that he felt that maybe he had this, I mean, he probably did kind of, I mean, I knew him fairly well, he kind of personality that he doesn't want to collaborate. He doesn't want to get into that. And he would rather just figure it out himself. That's fine. That's beautiful. But let me tell you, there's a lot of people that don't give credit to other musicians and they should be ashamed of themselves. See, there's a guy, Alex, that I wish had felt like he could be more prolific, that he would do more things that maybe he wasn't capturing the lightning in the bottle all the time, that we just would have gotten more records out of him. But do you feel like that? No, he had the perfect amount of records and was just... <laughs> no, my relationship with Alex was different than most people. He was always very kind to me. And one of the main reasons why is because we never talked about music. Maybe music wasn't that such a huge deal to him like it is to his fans. I mean, I only screamed watching that documentary. It's like, I knew for a fact that he hated half those people. And then them talking down about his love for Panther Burns and for punk rock, that was totally from his heart. He loved that. This is the thing. It's like we push our own sort of neediness onto people. Alex did what he did, and it's not perfect, and it's not flawed. It's just what he, it's his body of work, and it's to be cherished. But he hated having to be Alex Chilton with the Uber fans. It's like, you know, what the fuck? Leave the guy alone. And then what happens, what happens inevitably is then you get this reputation for being a dick. I mean, same with Jeffrey Lee. Jeffrey Lee was a sweetheart, but oh no, he's crazy. You know, did this to me, did that to me. Well, what were you doing at the time? How were you treating him? You're treating him like some sort of fucking monkey in a fucking zoo. I get along great usually with the people that other people say, not a nice person. You know, and I guess that's because I'm not a particularly nice person. I don't know. <laughs> well, you've been very self-deprecating reading some of the things in the book, which I know because you're writing fiction, even though it's rooted in your life, you can kind of play with, I don't know, well, you can, you tell me, I mean, are the, the sort of observations, the cutting observations, you know, on your own past career and the son of the character thought of the, yeah, most of the songs sucked. Yeah, guys had a good guitarist. Like, are those quotes or those are kind of you making jokes at your own expense? That's Bobo. That for <laughs> sure is Bobo. Yeah, Bobo is my toughest critic. Yeah. 
But, you know, that's what's great. You know, we can talk about it. He's a very good drummer and he's graduating with a music degree. And we used to duke it out about stuff. And boy, when he was younger, he was into some horrible stuff. And it just used to drive me nuts. But he's come around and he's kind of in a cool rock band in uh, Hoboken. And if he would have thought it was all great, I would have just said, I thought we had a real relationship, you know. Of course, it's a lot of it's going to sound really bad to you, but he likes a few things, and he's he knows me, and he knows he knows it now, and because he's got that music degree, that one of the main guys at Stevens in Hoboken is Carlos Alomar. Yeah, he's knocking heads with Carlos a lot. He's noticing that some of the shit that I used to tell him, other people also say, and it's people that maybe have more experience in the real world than they do in academia, because. Regardless of what you want to say about somebody like Carlos Alomar, if as far as what he might be doing or not doing in an academic setting, the truth is, is the guy not only played with James Brown, but played with Bowie all those years. And before that, what was it? Brooklyn Bridge or something? What was the Philippe? I forget. But that's fucking Carlos Alomar. I mean, you know, <laughs> so... It's a funny thing. Wisdom comes in funny packages a lot of times. Jim Dickinson comes to mind. A lot of wisdom. Al Cooper even with a K. Yeah, Al. Somebody like Glenn Johns, not so much. (laughs) So are you finding some of the generation, I don't want to use the word generation gap, but the difference in perspective, it seems like there's something about the punk ethos in particular that it's hard to explain to people who sort of want, I want to say, objective measures of quality? (laughs) In other words, can you play your instrument really well? Is it tight? The fact that like you don't have to know how to sing for real, no vocal coach is going to teach you to sing like Mick Jagger or, you know, so that there's a whole, in fact, I've read recently this being referred to as kind of some white privilege sort of, uh, uh, you know, we could be mediocre, not having to meet Tin Pan Alley standards or whatever standards that if, I guess, according to this story, that if you were a minority, you, you get no slack. Whereas we white guys, we were sort of allowed. I don't know. So this is, this seems to be something that I'm not putting aside the, whatever you think of the weird racial politics angle, but the idea that you don't have to be tight. Or do you think that punk is just a perennial thing? There's always going to be those too slick versus being honest and raw. And those are, you know, there's nothing particularly tied to 1978 or 1972 or something about the latter. Well, first of all, Michael Jackson thought that Mick Jagger couldn't sing, okay? So I'll just leave that (laughs) right there, okay? So current controversy notwithstanding. Exactly. That's what I'm talking about, yeah. But also, this idea of playing has come back of being, you know, he's good. Like, I don't know what that means. What do you mean? He plays a lot of notes? What do you mean? He's No, he's a good, you know, what is it? What What are you talking about? What really defined... A lot of the rawness and a lot of the, you know, going 50s rock is that tape was expensive. It was expensive. It was more expensive than the studio. Tape was expensive. And you had to make choices. You had to editorial. You had to make these decisions. And now you can just do it over and over and over and over. And you can do it and you can, you know, do all sorts of stuff to make it sound, quote unquote, good. And I think that you can really tell. I do not think that today's pop music is going to be revered. 
I mean, obviously, each generation, it gets a little more tertiary. Shouldn't in pop, because pop operates outside of something like rock and roll, okay? Pop music is a different sort of ball of wax. But I have a hard time believing that these songs by committee being coming out of Sweden, you know, showing up at some R&B singer in the United States, well, not, not our, you know, what I don't know what to call it. I'll take all that Interpol Kaiser Chiefs over. At least that was still sort of in the, the pop discussion. I do think that this sort of snobbery has come back. Oh, they can't really play. You know, and I think, you know, who's catching a lot of it is these kids, that Greta Van Fleet fan, you know, that to me actually sounds more like sticks than <laughs> Zeppelin. But a lot of the piling on by people my age is strictly musical. You know, it's like, oh, you know, they did this Fairport Convention cover and he went to the, you know, he played the minor instead of the major there. He doesn't even know what he's, I mean, what a bunch of bullshit. Leave the fucking kids alone. You know, we take up all the oxygen. We're out there still taking up, you know, playing every night out there and kids can't get gigs. And then the one rock band that comes along that at least is sort of like touching on some of those iconic things from when we were kids. Now you're just going to say that they should kill themselves. It's like, what? I would have been doing whatever was cool in 1977, 78. If it would have been spontaneous sculptures in the street, I would have been doing that. If it would have been guerrilla theater, I was doing that. But what was available was punk rock. So thank God or thank the devil or whatever. But um, that gave me permission to be creative. You know, isn't that what we want for everybody, not just old privileged white guys? Don't we want permission that everybody can be creative and do something that makes their life richer? Yeah, that should be the sort of democratic punk ethos. When, you know, as somebody trying to make music over a long period of time and trying to get it accepted, in fact, I saw the punk ethos or, you know, this core as being the source of snobbiness that and it's it sort of reflected in a little in what you're saying if what a high bar you have for you know you know of the stuff neil young created how much of it is actually necessary and even you know holding yourself to that standard of that it really unless it's catching lightning in a bottle then it sort of in some ways doesn't deserve to exist that that's very much counter to the i just want to go out and express myself and i want to let everybody express themselves and be very democratic and open-minded about it and not care if they're singing exactly in tune so I put out numbers of albums like, hey, look, I can sing not traditionally well <laughs> as well, but yet somehow people don't catch my voice and, and see it as the, uh, the masterstroke of genius as Stephen Malkmus or something, you know, somebody in the punk canon. I, I guess I have mixed feelings that as much as I don't like the getting too uptight about playing everything in time and in tune, at least that's a standard I can get a hold of as opposed to this kind of you know, are you in the cool crowd or not, which is just much more nebulous. What you hope still happens, and hopefully this still is happening, is that there's still scenes, that there's still communities of kids that are coming out of their garage and basements and they're finding a venue to play and their friends show up and people fall in love and out of love and some go on to college and other go to penitentiary and they're having this time in their lives that's meaningful, Right. And just talking to my son about what's going on in Hoboken, it's it's suddenly become very tough to do that. Very, very tough. The venues, the amount of venues are going away. And as far as punk, you know, my kid thought it was guitar music. You know, I had to tell him, no, that's what happened later. That's what happened with, 
suddenly these, you know, they said this term hardcore. I mean, I've got stories about that. I don't want to, I know all the guys, DOA and shit. I know all that. And I had to explain to him that, you know, back in the day, it's just, it, it was anything. And that there was a lot of girls in the scene playing and that you could play any instrument you wanted. There was a lot of horns. There's saxophones came back. Accordions came back. It was just whatever you wanted to do. But, you know, it got hijacked. The whole thing got very male and very white, right? And it got very and very angry. I mean, you know, the anger was always for there. But, you know, come on. The Ramones was a cartoon band. So it's just, you know, it's hard to keep it all straight, you know, when everybody had these different agendas. So, I, you know, I give my hats off. I like the end of this one um, Pete Townsend interview where he got very wonky with all of you sending in his replies on email. And he got very wonky about all the equipment he used to play and setting a bunch of stuff straight. But at the end of the article, he said, I just want to say that if you have music in your life and you have an instrument that you could pick up that's sitting around your house, that is a wonderful thing. And that's what we all have in common. And it was a beautiful thing to hear him say that. It was like he wasn't saying only I can do this or this is mine. No, he was saying anybody that has, if you have something like that in your life, you're a lucky person. That's what he said. And you're a lucky person. And I totally agree with that. Yeah, I think I established in one of the early episodes that basically the who and the clash in terms of uh, spiritual fathers are kind of the same, are the same line of descendants. There's something very punk about that, even though it's you know right in the heart of classic rock and has all this rock opera and very much how good a bass player. You know, some of the other things that are very much not punk in terms of the musicianship and, but yeah, no, that's great. I and I hope you, despite your uh, protestations that every album might be the last, I look forward to the next one. Before we get out of here, I want to play this. Who knows from the Slummers, Love of the Amateur, 2010. So this seemed to be right when you were. Picking it back up, the first project that you did before you did your second solo album. Before my brain broke. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, the Slummers, I always wanted to be in an art band, and that's what we did. We got an art band together, but the only people that like that record are other musicians. <laughs> I love this song, Who Knows? I think it's a cool arrangement. The way that the noises and guitars and things are, are layered is just, it, it enables you to take, I guess that's one of the ways that you can you know, still basically have something that is bluesy, something that is rootsy, but if you put enough weird psychedelic shit over it, then it sounds like somehow something from a different planet. Yeah, I, I think I think Antonio Gramentieri, yeah, Antonio produced that, I think, yeah. Thank you so much, Dan. Well, th thank you, Mark. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for giving a shit. It means a lot. Wrong chord.
Thanks so much to Dan. What a great guest to get for episode 100. That was definitely one I had to build up to. You'll recall I had Chris Kakavas a while back, who was the keyboardist and actually co-lead singer at the very beginning of Green on Red. I should say Chris has since formally joined Steve Wynn in the revived Dream Syndicate, one of those bands that was going strong in the late 80s alongside Green on Red. And Steve Wynn, as I said, did two albums with Dan as Danny and Dusty, which are really fun albums. I really would have liked to have included a song from that. But man, with all Dan has to say, I think we had plenty of songs in this episode. I could definitely do several more conversations just with Dan talking about music. Just a very fun guy. My next interview will be with Allison Chesley, a.k.a. Helen Money. She does rock and roll cello instrumentals that are super cool. I was very, very honored to finally have interviewed... One of the residents, one of my most important musical influences, a very, very weird band. I want to thank everybody that's become a supporter on my Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. Signing up there for a small recurring donation is the only way to ensure that these interviews will keep on coming. And if you subscribe to the feed there, you'll get all the episodes ad-free. I also want to announce my brand new podcast. It's on all things entertainment. It's called Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast. You can listen to the first episode at prettymuchpop.com or get in on the ground floor suggesting topics hearing bonus material at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. You will not yet find that on iTunes. We're still sort of in a pre-release phase. I would love to get your feedback on what you're hearing there so far. Hope everybody's having a good summer. Everybody keep on musicking. Until next time, this is Mark Linton Meyer signing off. They shot my-